Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted January 30, 2022, titled, Seven Best Reasons for the Resurrection, featuring Dr. Kip Davis. Are there fresh arguments that Jesus actually rose from the grave? My gut says no. But my heart is hopeful for a yes. Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. Dr. Jeremiah J. Johnston. J. Jonah Jameson. Triple J. Dr. J. Dr. J. Dr. J. Hey, Dr. J. Dr. J. You better bring bring the bring the goods, man. I'm with you, Sean. Bring the goods, Dr. J. Bring it. I've always wanted to have Bono on. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Today, we've got Dr. Jeremiah Johnson has a new book coming out. I was fortunate to get an early copy of it. It's called Body of Proof. I think it's fantastic. He lays out seven reasons he believes in the resurrection. We're going to get into those. But Dr. J, I got to tell you, before we get to your fresh argument, whenever I hear someone say they have a new argument, I've got number one, an eye roll. That's me. I definitely did an eye roll. Second, I don't believe him. But in your case, it gave me pause because I know you and your scholarship. Now, here at Apologia, We don't really care too much about credentials. I mean, I'm just a former Christian layperson who makes YouTube videos without any formal credentials in this field. All I care about is the strength of the argument. But for some reason in this interview, both Sean and Jeremiah leaned very heavily into an argument from authority fallacy situation where they imply the strength of what is being presented is dependent on Jeremiah's credentials. If I could just elbow in scholarly for a minute, I, I say this is a gospel scholar, a PhD knows a lot about a little. So if people want that, they're going to have to go to your yep. scholarly work. Scholarly speaking, is there pretty good consensus? I appreciate that you're a scholar that makes stuff practical. I understand that I'm not even credentialed enough to comment on his credentials. But Dr. Kip Davis is. So in 2012, uh, Society of Biblical Literature, I presented a paper uh, with a room full of scholars and skeptics and seekers. And at Society of Biblical Literature, it's fun because you present the paper and then scholars can react immediately. They can completely disagree um, and they can actually strengthen your argument. And I was delighted because Craig Keener, a man that I respect highly, for those of you who don't know him, he's a classicist. He's an amazing author, a great scholar, very fair scholar. And he's a true classicist. He said, Jeremiah, you are onto something with this argument. I presented the early version uh, many versions ago of what is in the popular version now in my book, Body of Proof. Jeremiah is not wrong. The Society of Biblical Literature, or the SBL, annual meeting, which takes place every November, is a lot of fun. However, what he fails to note is that this paper he gave was not exactly an SBL paper. You see, the SBL is a massive gathering of biblical and religious scholars from everywhere in the world and of every religious conviction. But the SBL also accommodates a number of affiliates at their conference each year. These are smaller scholarly societies like ASOR or the Adventist Society for Religious Studies or the Institute for Biblical Research. They will run their annual meetings concurrently with SBL as affiliates, taking advantage of the logistical headache and huge expense that the SBL assumes every year to plan a conference attended by 
10,000 or more people. So Johnston presented a paper at the 2012 meeting in Chicago in an affiliate section of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, or EPS, titled How Early Critics and Objectors Confirm the Truth of the Easter Story. The EPS is not listed among the SBL program units because it is an affiliate. As an affiliate, it does not operate under all the same conditions as SBL program units, and as such, a scholarly yet sympathetically apologetic paper like this one is much more likely to be accepted for presentation in a section like EPS, where apologetics are part of their mandate. Moreover, his claim that it was received by scholars, skeptics, and seekers is almost certainly far from the truth of it. Sure, there may be a handful of skeptical scholars in the audience in an EPS section, but this group is by and large like-minded evangelicals with like-minded ideas about Jesus and the resurrection. In my experience, these sorts of affiliate sections are only attended by members of the society that has organized them. That is, unless there is a particularly more widely interesting paper listed in the catalog and maybe a presentation by a more prominent scholar, then a section like this may find a more diverse audience. But I don't think that is what's happening here. No, I'm pretty confident there were, for example, none of the literally thousands of Jewish attendees at the SBL in Johnston's audience. As for Keener, yes, he is a classicist, but he is also a pretty ardent evangelical and a member of the EPS. More than likely, a paper like Johnston's, which is actually a pretty solid brief study of Christian apologetics in the second century, and I read it, his paper would not have been accepted under that title and forwarding his conclusions in an SBL section because one of the mandates of the SBL is to abstain from promoting one or another religious viewpoint. And this is speaking as someone who has served on SBL section committees, selected papers for presentation at the annual meeting, and has presented dozens of papers myself at the annual meeting. Okay, but... What if I told you that Jeremiah went to Oxford? Content that I researched when we lived in Oxford. Okay. Sean, when I was in Oxford, if I'm going to do what I was taught at Oxford, living in Oxford, I heard all of the ironclad uh, ir- you know, <laughs> arguments. He was my examiner uh, in Oxford. Johnston makes a pretty big deal about his time and studies at Oxford and leaves one with the impression that he earned a doctoral degree from the University of Oxford. He did not. Johnston's degree is from Middlesex University in London and was awarded as part of his participation in a program at the Oxford Centre for Mission Studies. This is an evangelical organization located in the city of Oxford that provides opportunities for students to come and study there, having access and privileges at all the Oxford University libraries and even some courses and faculty. However, being in Oxford and studying at Oxford is not the same as earning a degree from Oxford. Both of the medieval universities of Oxford and Cambridge operate under a complicated system, whereby they are actually consortiums of 30 or so individual colleges. Students register at one of these colleges, which is often where they live and which undertake the administration and logistics of the programs of study. However, all the academics, the faculty, courses, and research resources, these are all shared among the colleges, and students registered in these colleges earn degrees awarded by the University of Oxford or Cambridge. So what Johnston is doing here is taking advantage of the ambiguity that is unfortunately built into the system. 
in an effort to mislead his audience into thinking that he completed a University of Oxford PhD, but without outright saying so. It's duplicitous, and he obviously knows as much since he is keenly aware of the fact that his degree is from Middlesex University, not Oxford, and was earned, to quote from his bio, in residency in Oxford in collaboration with Oxford Centre for Mission Study. The OCMS says of itself that it is, quote, committed to cutting-edge mission scholarship by global mission and ministry leaders with an emphasis mission in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. With flexible residency requirements and part-time study framework, the OCMSMU program is designed to allow those engaged in mission and ministry to remain embedded in their ministries while pursuing their research degree, which is awarded, quote, as a collaborative partner of Middlesex University. None of which has anything to do with the veracity of his actual arguments. And we'd have said not a word about any of this if Jeremiah himself hadn't repeatedly pointed to his credentials as evidence rather than pointing to the actual evidence. Trust me, I'm a doctor. Trust me, I'm a doctor. Trust me, I'm doctor. Perhaps Jeremiah can stick to the facts in future presentations. It's also worth noting that his new book, Body of Proof, and I think it comes out in March, so if you see this before, we're almost two months before it's out. Uh, You can pre-order it, check it out. Isn't out yet for me to read. So all we can respond to is the case put forth during his interview. Something that Sean seems to be preemptively scolding me for. Again, let me say, if people are going to do video reviews, fine, go back and check out Dr. J's scholarly work. And then maybe you and I can come back and take some of those point by point uh, in due time, maybe as it gets closer to Easter. I mean, okay. I checked out Jeremiah's academic publications page. And what's listed there is a paper on the extra-biblical gospel of Peter, a collection of hermeneutical essays he didn't write, an article on heaven he co-wrote, an article on sacraments he co-wrote, and the only one that seems remotely relevant to today's topic, an encyclopedia article on the resurrection that he co-wrote. Sean linked to a paper, How Early Critics and Objectors Confirm the Truth of the Easter Story, which isn't in Google Scholar for some reason, but I've now read for the purposes of this response. I also found and read Jeremiah's master thesis, The Emergence of the Concept of Resurrection in Judeo-Christian Faith, a Tradition-Critical Study. You can go read his book, you can pick up the articles, you can go to the scholarly PDF and analyze it for yourself. Hopefully I've done enough homework. Let's get to it. Let's jump straight in, because there's a lot of people, believers and Protestant skeptics, who want to know what your best case is. Oh, will this be aimed at skeptics? My audience is the vast majority of followers of Jesus. Oh, So you're mainly convincing people who are already convinced. Who love Jesus, but if you ask them, hey, tell me, why do you believe uh, in the resurrection of Jesus evidentially and don't use your Bible? Uh, They're going to give you a deer in the headlights look. Well, that's great news. You're not going to be using your Bible. I guess there'll be no need for my jingle today. All right, Jay, let's jump in. You say reason number one. We can trace out of the upper room. The teaching that Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave, married with the experience of the early Christians who actually saw him, touched him, had dined with him in his resurrection state, this caused them, it motivated them to spread the message because it is true, it has a life-transforming value. And that value extends to all people. Christianity has transformative value, therefore it is true. Is Jeremiah really putting forth that the only way to explain lives changed 
by Islam, Mormonism, Hinduism, a self-help book like The Secret, a motivational speaker, a fad diet, a get-rich-quick scheme, crystals or essential oils, is that they are based on factual truth? Nothing false can transform. Is that what you're saying? Um, Everything from the treatment of women and children? I'm not sure that Christianity's treatment of women and children is something that I'd hold up as a positive, particularly to skeptics. But you do you. Uh, we lay out 10 ways in which in the book, Christianity not, had Christianity been a resurrection less religion, it would have died. That I look forward to seeing because the mistaken belief that something happened has exactly the same motivational force as the veridical knowledge that something happened. I've never seen and I can't imagine how you can differentiate one from the other solely from the net effect. They are indistinguishable. Um, I could easily see somebody push back and say, okay, you're right. It's the Christian ideas of this that foster this movement. If you believe people are made in the image of God, if you believe that Jesus has conquered the grave, this could foster the development right. of these kind of movements. But why did, Why is that a reason to believe Jesus actually rose in the grave? Isn't that a reason to believe that the story of Jesus uh, appeals to the human heart, motivated people to live differently? Tie that to the actual resurrection for me. Yeah, you asked hardballs right at the beginning. That's why I love coming on your show, Sean. Thank you for asking questions that skeptics and seekers alike are like, oh, thank you. We finally get to the good stuff at the beginning of the show. It is a great question. If you could get to an answer, that'd be awesome. <laughs> First off, I would take a lot more faith to believe in that scenario because the Christian movement had died. In Luke 24, 21. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Your evidence that the Christian movement had died is Luke 24. What happened to... Tell me, why do you believe uh, in the resurrection of Jesus evidentially? And don't use your Bible. If I'm uncritically accepting Luke at face value, then this stream and your book are entirely unnecessary. Luke says that Jesus rose from the dead. We accept Luke, so end of discussion. But if you want to demonstrate that Luke is correct, you can't appeal to Luke to do it. Um, Jesus Christ was thought to be a failure like many of the other messianic pretenders and contenders of the first century. The movement had died out. And why shouldn't it? Their savior had, quote unquote, died on a Roman cross as an enemy of the state. But this one fact alone is what separates the Christian movement from all others. So Christianity has to be true because it was popular, because it was successful. All popular ideas are true. Is that what Jeremiah wants us to accept? And they didn't feel like it. They didn't want to experience. This was not some kind of wish-filled thinking. This is going to be a theme for Jeremiah. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. For his case to be made, the disciples had to have had no expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. But at the same time, Jesus totally predicted his death to the disciples. And the Old Testament definitely predicts that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Which is it? Pick a lane. They can't have every reason to expect a resurrection and have no reason to expect a resurrection at the same time. Uh, they had left. They had departed. They had apostatized, if you would. And then, boom, this one historical truth transformed them from running. On what non-biblical basis can I know that any of Jesus's followers were running scared? To being able to being willing to risk their life. I'd love for Sean or Jeremiah or anyone to give us a list of people who were A, eyewitnesses, and B, willing to risk their life, and C, what historical data we have that makes us think so. Not nebulous group monikers, 
but names who who were willing to risk their life because of something they personally witnessed who when we read the the scriptures we can't do so anachronistically it's easy to say oh yeah jesus he died and he died on a roman cross very few jews in the time of jesus expected their messiah to die in fact we see from the dead sea scrolls and any other writings from late antiquity late second simple judaism uh they expected the roman or the the messiah to show up and kill all the romans even kill the roman emperor well we have someone on hand who spent their life studying the dead sea scrolls this is basically accurate and it's trivial we also know from the scrolls as well as other early jewish literature that there were a variety of competing messianic expectations circulating throughout judaism in the first century while it appears that the vast majority of Jews were expecting a political messiah who would deliver them from under Roman occupation by force. This was likely not a universally held belief. Moreover, a close reading of the Gospels with an eye to the history that we might discover within them reveals that Jesus in his lifetime was probably this type of figure. He also expected a miraculous, tangible deliverance of Israel from Roman occupation. His crucifixion was not part of the plan, but then engendered a new direction for this apocalyptic movement. Sure, if they wanted to start with this narrative, uh, it was a non-starter in the Roman Empire. If they wanted to make this up in some kind of wish-filled utopia, it just would have fallen on deaf ears. Okay, so Jeremiah never actually answers Sean's question. What about the transformative nature of Christianity necessitates that the resurrection be true? He just asserted that the disciples were unlikely to have made it up. That's not an answer. If reason number one is transformative powers against opposite worldviews, then talk about how transformation necessarily requires historical grounding to happen. Otherwise, this is a nothing burger. Let's move to reason number two. You say Jesus called it, meaning he predicted it. See? In point number one, Jeremiah said that the disciples didn't expect resurrection. Yet his point number two is that Jesus predicted it. Uh, There are modern skeptics, some that are darlings that say, you know, people who came later uh, deified him and in so doing put words in his mouth. But what, what does the scripture actually show us? Okay. So we've completely abandoned. Tell me, why do you believe uh, in the resurrection of Jesus evidentially? And don't use your Bible. I only use two reasons from Scripture out of seven, by the way. It's this one and the next one. So this should be five reasons, not seven. Why do I suspect that even that is too high a count? We needed the jingle on the first one. Best possible score is When we open the New Testament documents, and I believe that the New Testament documents are historical documents, I don't privilege the biblical text. I mean, you should not privilege the text of the Bible, but carry out your arguments. The statement, you should not privilege the text of the Bible, implies that one should not treat the Bible as being inherently more important or authoritative than other texts or sources of knowledge or belief. And one thing that these historical documents that make up the New Testament show us is that Jesus, in fact, did predict his death and resurrection. Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33 and 34, and Mark 14. Okay. Well, in any written work, if an event at the end of the work is hinted at near the start of the same work, we just call that foreshadowing. Well, most of us call that foreshadowing. He was giving the sign of Jonah, and then he adumbrated that. You were the first person to use the word adumbrated or adumbrations in one of my live streams. So congratulations. That is an SAT (laughs) word. Nice job. Adumbration refers to a sketch or outline representation of an idea or image where more detail will be added in later. 
In literature, it might be used to introduce a character or plot element in a way that is not fully explained at first, but will be developed further on in the story. Foreshadowing, on the other hand, refers to the use of hints or clues to suggest events or developments that will occur later in the story. Either way, when the initial setup and the payoff to the setup are in literally the same document, there's no reason to prefer prophetic utterance over literary device. The belief in Jesus' resurrection was 20 years old by the time Mark was penned, so there's no way to tell if these predictions are historical or literary. From hindsight, those two things are indistinguishable. You'd have to privilege the biblical text to prefer the more complex and less likely notion of prophecy when simple foreshadowing explains it fully. Then at Dale Allison points out in his recent book, in which he defends some of the resurrection but offers some mm-hmm. critiques, he says, wait a minute, if Jesus so clearly predicted his resurrection, then why are the apostles so confused? Why won't Thomas believe for eight days when his buddies, the apostles, say, we saw the risen Jesus? Why this lack of belief if he so clearly predicted it? Great question. You know, I, I have huge respect for Dale Allison and his commentary series and his work on the resurrection. We've had him speak and interacted with him as well in the scholarly work. But if I could just elbow in scholarly for a minute. Is Jeremiah trying to say he's more scholarly than Dale Allison? Because if there was a ranking system for New Testament scholarship, believing Christian Dale is in the top tier. Dale's a great scholar. Uh, I mean, my scholarship will ever be just a fraction of what his is. He is, he is Mm. that good. Mm. He is really, and he has a good go on Google scholar and every individual Dale Allison work is cited in the triple digits. Jeremiah can't even scrape together a dozen citations. Citation count doesn't correlate with correctness, but don't come in flashing your credentials as a means to discredit someone with far more. Again, I have no credentials whatsoever. Everything I'm putting forth should be evaluated as such. I would just say this. Uh, it would be impossible to, for us to essentially, uh, again, anachronistically go in and say, how did they believe this? We can't get into the disciples' head. They didn't believe a lot of things, and let alone the resurrection. If you can't get into the disciples' heads, then you can't tell me what they did or didn't believe about the Messiah or the resurrection or what they would have found embarrassing. I think you're absolutely right. And you've nullified so much of your own work here. And great answer, by the way. That's really helpful. Helpful how? I'll leave this as homework for the listener, but Jeremiah's full rambling answer was in no way helpful. He said we can't get into the disciples' heads and then proceeded to assert what was in the disciples' heads. As far as I'm concerned, Dr. Allison's criticism stands. Number three, you said Jesus demonstrated resurrection power. Go. Absolutely. And this is number three, because if Jesus uh, can proclaim that he's going to res- be resurrected himself, that he is the resurrection and life, you better prove that he can actually do this. So number three evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is that Jesus rose from the dead? Really? That's the kind of circular reasoning Jeremiah uses to compel people who already believe? Did you know that Lazarus has two different burial spots? He has one, of course, in Bethany and another in Cyprus. Did you know you can go to the island of Cyprus today and you can go to the second burial spot of Lazarus? Oh, that's the kind of critical scholarship that Jeremiah espouses. According to Eastern tradition, Lazarus and his siblings escaped to Cyprus, where Lazarus was selected as the first bishop of Larnaca. 
His second tomb was lost, but in 890 AD, a marble sarcophagus inscribed with the words, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Christ, was allegedly found in Larnaca. Jeremiah doesn't find it suspicious that the inscription was not preserved, nor that this find benefited the area as a sanctioned stop in Christian tourism with an elaborate new church now provided by Rome. Jeremiah doesn't mind that there is a competing Western tradition that Lazarus instead went to Provence, France, where he became the bishop. Without a caveat or conditional, Jeremiah declares this woefully unevident speculation to be fact. Number four, Dr. J, you better bring, bring, the, bring the goods, man. I mean, you said this is a fresh argument. As far as you can tell, I've given you this platform. You know, I'm partly messing with you. I put you here because yeah, I've no. read it and I thought, you know what? I teach a class on the resurrection and at least the way you approach this is unique. So I do think it's fresh as far as I'm aware. Reason number four, Jesus rose from the grave. No motivation to invent Jesus' resurrection narrative is evident. Sean, how can you sit there and placate Jeremiah? when you have literally given this exact argument many times, including to me when we had our chat on Unbelievable. So in my response video, I say, Jay Warren Wallace, cold case detective, who's never lost a case. Every case he did, he says people are motivated by sex, lust, money, greed, or power. Those are the big three. And so we look at the disciples and we see no evidence that they're motivated by sex Jesus treated women with nothing but charity and kindness. There's no evidence that they're motivated by power. This allegedly new argument is just warmed over standard J. Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, Lee Strobel, Apologist 101 Fair. Or people invented this, you'd have to have one or more of those three motivators. And I don't see the I don't see the New Testament writers getting sex, money, and power or power for saying any of this was true. They had no motive to invent it. Uh, but this is the first time I've gone public with this new hmm. reason, this fresh argument. Maybe you should have trotted this one out for vetting before you completed the book. Because Dr. J, this is the opposite of fresh. Oh, it is not fresh. I feel like I may not even need to address this argument about the state of the mind of the disciples. Because you said yourself. We can't get into the disciples' head. But please. Elaborate for us. If you and I were followers of a rabbi called James, and so-called James is really a great, phenomenal guy. He even might do some miracles. Uh, he might even have some interesting stories about his origins. And he dies. We can honor our rabbi James. We can believe that he will live again in the general resurrection. Absolutely. And we can carry on even his teaching. We have no psychological motivation to invent a resurrection narrative about our rabbi because we don't need it. Because Judaism is a coherent religion, why do they even need a resurrection narrative? They don't need it unless it actually happened. This is silly on its face. Judaism existed, so why do they need Christianity? Judaism existed, so why did anyone need Islam? Islam existed, so why did they need Baha'i? Christianity existed, so why did they need Mormonism? Hinduism existed, so why did they need Sikhism? I'm guessing Jeremiah has explanations that don't involve them all being based on facts and reality. That it actually happened. I see no reason, other than special pleading, to exempt Christianity from any of these same motivations. One of which is just a group of enthusiastic, well-meaning people being sincerely 
mistaken. Okay, so let me make sure I understand. When you say there's no psychological motivation, typically what people say is, well, they could have a motivation for power. It's amazing what people do for some level of power. Yes, I said this exact thing to Sean. The fact that a fisherman from Galilee, you know, after having had all these experiences, having crowds around him and all these kind of things, it feels like going back to fishing is a not the not the best way to make money and all we we can debate about whether or not the disciples actually ended up getting make earning a living it seems like paul was at least earning somewhat of a living but in terms of power when i was in church ministry when i was in youth ministry i saw over and over it only takes the smallest piece of power for people to lust after that power so you put someone in charge of the bake table Bake sale table, that person is all in on the power of that, that bake sale <laughs> table. It made no sense to come up with this story versus another story. Is that the heart of the argument you're making? I think you've summarized it very well, Sean, because there would be no psychological motivation. But remember, we can't get into the disciples' head, meaning you don't need it. You can honor Jesus in the way that you want to honor him. You don't need to go make up a story that he died and rose again. It seems Jeremiah is defending against the notion that someone invented Jesus' resurrection whole cloth knowing it was a lie. This is entirely irrelevant to me as I think Christianity is best explained as originating with a few people who were sincerely mistaken and having it grow from there. Jeremiah has nothing to say to that hypothesis. The gospel writers, if, again, if they want to have a theological or psychological motivation, hey, we should, Sean, let's get together and come up with something. Let's write something very compelling uh, and let's really make this up in a way that it is going to impact lots of people. If the gospel writers invented the resurrection story, they did a terrible job. What are you talking about? They did an amazing job. The stories of Jesus absolutely impacted lots of people. So, exactly as they exist, was the best way to make them compelling. For many decades, Christians talked about Jesus and tried to win converts. And it makes sense that just like the phrasing of a joke can be honed over retelling for maximum laughter, so too the Jesus narratives that worked best at winning converts were the ones eventually written down. The gospel writers do not hide the embarrassing narrative that we read in the gospels um, and they don't do that because the stories are true. First of all, Jeremiah has no idea what was or wasn't embarrassing to the gospel writers. We can't get into the disciples' head. And it would make sense for the gospel writers to add in extra so-called embarrassing details as a literary device, including some details grounding the story and making the followers more relatable is a way to lend credibility to the more fantastical parts. As the cold case detective Christian apologist recently affirmed. That principle we talk about of embarrassment, I've known some guys who, who would include embarrassing things in their lie. I have known guys who in, in order to be perceived yeah, as... Yeah, because they want to be more persuasive with yeah. me. That's why we see this sober narrative. They're almost holding back at points, almost stunned themselves as they're reporting the events. I could see them looking back at uh, the gospel writer saying, I can't believe I didn't see it. I didn't see it there. How could I have been so wrong? I mean, we've all been there in other experiences in our life. We didn't realize what a big deal it was at the time that we were having that moment. I could see that in the life of the disciples. Yeah, 
Your empathetic reaction is exactly the literary and evangelical reason to include those details, even if they didn't actually happen that way. Our good friend Gary Habermas has done such a wonderful job the last 30 years bringing uh, Paul into the forefront as a great source for the resurrection of Jesus. I'm hoping that this book, in, in a small way, will uh, simply bring the Gospels back to the central centrality of that discussion as well. The Gospels? So this is all... I'm a specialist in extra-canonical Gospels, second-century extra-canonical Gospels. These are Gospels-like writings, about 70 of which that didn't uh, didn't make it into the New Testament canon. Indeed, early Christianity was replete with documents purporting to be historical, or written by someone well known, but were actually forgeries. The Bible warns that there are forgeries going around. This is an odd thing to remind the audience of when trying to act as if it's impossible for his favorite pet documents to be sub-historical. The Gospel of Preter is written in the late 2nd century, and it seems to be responding to the very same criticisms that uh, we're talking about in this show. The Gospel of Peter seems to fill those gaps apologetically. In the Gospel of Peter, which is not historical, it's not written by the Gospel of Peter, something like early Christian comic books— Jesus is gigantic when he comes out of the cross. Who does he appear to? He appears to uh, Pilate. You're worried about Jesus in the Gospel of Peter coming across as a comic book character. When the Jesus of the canonical Gospels reads like the ultimate X-Men mutant. If Jeremiah could imagine, even for a minute, a world where he wasn't already intimately familiar with the Bible his entire lifetime, and then heard cold the list of Jesus' biblical superpowers, Remote healing, transmutation of matter, food replication, weather control, animal commands, demon manipulation, levitation, shape-shifting, teleportation, clairvoyance, and raising the dead? Jeremiah would absolutely compare canonical Jesus to an overpowered comic book character. The minor Jesus buff up in Peter is the least of it. And so we see this, what you might call gap-filling narrative. When we open the the Gospel of Peter, we see that the Gospel of Peter, and I'll give you another one, the Acts of Pilate, seem to be answering these early objections from Kelsus and Porphyry and other early thinkers. They weren't the only ones who were saying, well, why didn't you you invent a narrative or why didn't you have Jesus uh, uh, before the high priest in his resurrection state? That's right. The second century Gospel of Peter adds things to the narrative to answer questions raised since. Similarly, as if to answer questions from Mark's brief account, the author of Matthew added story details like an earthquake, a glowing man, guards at the tomb, and various Jesus appearances. As if to answer objections about women at the tomb, the author of Luke adds Peter visiting the tomb. As if to answer objections about the physical nature of the resurrection, the author of John adds a story about Thomas touching his body and a beach fish fry with Jesus and his disciples. If you concede and are making the argument that the gospel Peter invented stuff for apologetic purposes, is it possible and or even likely that Luke and John did the same thing? Great question. Great thought. Great counter question. The answer is no. The answer is no. The incredibly analogous situation is yes when you like it, and straight up no when you don't. Never mind that Jeremiah's obstinance on this is in direct contradiction to Christian scholars like Mike Lacona and William Lane Craig. That shows that Matthew was constrained to 
refute a widespread Jewish counter-explanation of the empty tomb. Uh, What the Jewish authorities were saying in response to the disciples' proclamation that he is risen from the dead uh, is that the disciples came and stole his body away. Because the gospel writers... Their, their, their hills to die on are very embarrassing. Um, they're very culturally unacceptable. Which of the added details are embarrassing and culturally unacceptable? Earthquakes? Eclipses? Angels? Getting a dude to back up the story of the women? Someone asking for empirical evidence? Are you assuming that we don't know the stories when you say these things? Whereas the Acts of Pilate and the Gospel of Peter and other late second century Gospels, um, they are not going to put anyone at danger. Who would have been put in danger by first century Gospel embellishments? Peter and Paul were already dead. As before, I'd love for you to name who you mean. And and when you read them, and I write about this, and I appreciate Sean mentioning my monograph, these are very unsophisticated uh, writings. There is a lack of sophistication in these writings. The quality of writing in later embellishments tells us nothing about whether the earlier assertions were embellishments. Accurate accounts can be poorly written. Exaggerated accounts can be well-written. This is silly. The, the Gospels, in fact, are, are much more restrained in the things that they're saying. And we don't see them inventing something that would be uh, on the same level whatsoever. After 2,000 years of millions of Christians normalizing the canonical stories, they may seem restrained, but they are in no way restrained. They are absolutely fantastical. So much so that scholars consider Matthew's editions to be literary flourishes to accentuate theological points. I think what's going on here, when you look at the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature of the period, that would seem to suggest that Matthew does not mean for us to understand these in a historical sense, but he wants us to see these as what we would call as portents. Without justification... Jeremiah puts his preferred texts into a special pleading category. Now, could anyone invent anything at any time? Sure, I guess is a general answer to your question, but um, it's not the same case that I see with the Gospels whatsoever. From what I see, these are apples to apples comparisons. Entirely apt. Uh, I didn't realize the first time you'd gone public making that argument, so I'm honored you chose to do it here. And I'm guessing there's going to be some criticism. Good guess. Let's shift to number five. You say written and archaeological sources overwhelmingly, that's a pretty strong word, support the gospel's resurrection narratives. The juridical procedure that we see playing out in the Gospels is exactly what we find in Jewish burial traditions of the time. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Jody Magnus, an atheist archaeologist from the University of North Carolina, who I footnote in a book and others. Mm. Um, So she has no theological motivation to say this, says, yes, the Gospels get it right. And so when you study the archaeology of of burial traditions uh, in Judaism, we see that everything that we read in the Gospels smacks of authenticity. Around 900 rock-cut tombs have been discovered in and around Jerusalem dating to about the first century. Significantly, tomb burial in the area is restricted to two historical periods. There are Iron Age tombs from the 9th to 7th centuries BCE, prior to the rise of Babylonian influence and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem. Then there are none until about the 2nd or 1st century BCE, when the Hasmoneans wrested control of the city from the Seleucids. In this period, they started importing Hellenistic features into their tomb constructions, but the periods in which the tombs were used coincide with the extent and number of prominent and wealthy citizens in the city. One thing that is absolutely clear from Magnus's work on Jewish burial customs is that rock-hewn tombs were expensive. 
and only wealthy families could afford them. Calculations made from the numbers of tombs found suggests that in the first century, these could have accommodated a total of around 18,900 bodies, which is only a very small percentage of the population of Jerusalem, which at the time was never smaller than 60,000 people. It is estimated that at least 50 days of work by skilled laborers would be required to hew a rock tomb. All this is to say that the vast majority of Jewish residents were not buried in tombs. They were rather buried in stone-lined graves, trenches, or pits. We need to be clear here that Magnus has rather convincingly argued that the story of Jesus' burial in a new tomb just prior to the Sabbath is entirely plausible and fits precisely with first-century Jewish burial customs and with the archaeological finds around Jerusalem. However, Magnus is also careful to note that this information in no way ensures the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. At one point, she says regarding the story of Joseph of Arimathea, this understanding of the gospel accounts removes at least some of the grounds for arguments that Joseph of Arimathea was not a follower of Jesus or that he was a completely fictional character. Although, of course, it does not prove that Joseph existed or that this episode occurred. Furthermore, even if there was a member of the Sanhedrin sympathetic to Jesus, plausible but not certain, enough so to volunteer his tomb for temporary interment prior to the Sabbath, plausible but not certain, and that the tomb was discovered empty by women early on the morning after the Sabbath, plausible but not certain, none of this, none of it at all, gets close to affirming the bodily resurrection of a dead man. Magnus goes on to say, once Jesus had been buried in accordance with Jewish law, there was no prohibition with removing the body from the tomb after the end of the Sabbath and reburying it. It is therefore possible that followers or family members removed Jesus' body from Joseph's tomb after the Sabbath ended and buried it in a pit grave or a trench grave as it would have been unusual to leave a non-relative in a family tomb. So, even if one grants that the Gospels got this right, This does not mean much more than that the gospel writers were competent and very familiar with Jewish burial customs. It seems to me that the most plausible explanation for an empty tomb is that the body was removed and reburied before it was discovered empty by two of his female followers, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. This was early Sunday morning. The Sabbath ends at sundown on Saturday. I think the natural explanation here is that members of Jesus' family whom the gospel suggests were not close to the Jesus movement in his lifetime, a point actually made by Johnston later in this video. His family removed the body from the tomb and reburied it in a family plot, and no one from his group of fanatical apocalyptic followers knew about it. This is a phenomenal question. Would burial look differently for crucified criminals? And the answer is yes. But here's where we have to nuance it. A criminal being executed who's a Jew would have been buried not honorably, but properly. And if the, if the Sanhedrin condemned a, a criminal to die, they were the only body that could do that, it was on the Sanhedrin to then bury that criminal. Well, what do we see when we open the Gospels? Who's asking for the body of Jesus? We know that it's Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, he offers his own tomb. No one had been laid there before, so it was a proper burial spot. If any of Joseph, uh, Joseph's relatives had been buried, there would have been thought to have been an honorable burial spot. You know, if Sean, a righteous man, dies and he gets buried, you know, the McDowell family to crypt, that's an honorable spot. I, the criminal, would not have been on offer there to get buried. However, if Sean, a wealthy man, has a nice, uh, you know, really good spot, uh, he's willing to put me in there, he could bury me honorably, or excuse me, properly, not honorably. And please get that rhetoric correctly. I've, I've read some 
some stuff from scholars where they talk that Jesus received an honorable burial because Joseph and Arimathea and Nicodemus buried him, members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, no, they didn't bury him honorably, but they did bury him properly. And so this is a great question. I get into the details of that in that section on Jewish burial traditions. This strikes me as a rather odd point in view of what Johnston has already claimed regarding Jesus' burial in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Maybe this is something he fleshes out more in his book, but I haven't read it. So this is all I have to work with. What I think he is getting at is that there was a distinction made for criminals convicted by the Sanhedrin who were either stoned, burned, decapitated, or strangled and left unburied or otherwise discarded. We know this from Mishnah Sanhedrin 71. Jody Magnus, again, notes that the Sanhedrin had jurisdiction only in the enforcement of Jewish law. Importantly, Jesus was convicted by Roman authorities for crimes against Rome. He was not convicted for a violation of Jewish law. While the Sanhedrin prohibited the burial of criminals who had violated Jewish law in tombs, Magnus says, quote, the Mishnah attaches no stigma to crucifixion by the Roman authorities and does not prohibit victims of crucifixion from being buried with their families. But I think Johnston is confusing matters here. It seems like he is taking as certain the claim from the New Testament that it was the Jewish Sanhedrin who convicted and executed Jesus. But we know this not to be the case because he was crucified, not stoned, burned, decapitated, or strangled. Had he been convicted by the Sanhedrin for violating Jewish law, he would not have been crucified, nor would he have been interred in a tomb. But rather because the Gospels are consistent on this point, it is obvious that Jesus was crucified by Romans for sedition against Rome, and as such, there was no prohibition against his burial in a tomb. My guess is that the point Johnston wants to make is important for bolstering the claim that Jesus's messianic aspirations were a form of blasphemy in that he self-identified as God. But there is no evidence outside of the Gospels to support such an idea. Rather to the contrary, if the picture portrayed by the Gospels is to find any historical merit, then it is consistent with the idea that Jesus did not ever make any public claims to divinity had he done so, the Sanhedrin would have executed him by means other than crucifixion, and he would have been disposed of as a Jewish criminal. One of the things towards the end of the book you go into is the garden tomb versus the holy sepulcher. For those who don't know, there are at least two locations in the Holy Land purporting to be the burial site of Jesus. As you can imagine, both receive hundreds of thousands of visitors each year, at least pre-pandemic. Scholarly speaking, is there pretty good consensus and reason to believe that we actually have the burial spot of Jesus at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Short answer, yes. Um, I have 2,500 <laughs> words. I will have to wait for the release of the book to see what Jeremiah's 2,500 words say. But I'm curious who this consensus would be. Of the people who specifically commit to one location or the other? Because there isn't even heterogeneous scholarly consensus that Jesus was buried in any tomb let alone a specific tomb. There's no getting around the fact that this site was venerated in the 4th century, hundreds of years after the destruction and fall of Jerusalem. Emperor Constantine's mother was sent out to find long-lost holy Christian sites. And to no one's surprise, locals in each region managed to pitch something and receive money from Rome. If you're putting forth church tradition as your source, your fifth point is somehow even less founded than the previous four Bible-based ones. 
I do have one more somewhat quick question, uh, if it's possible. But the chapter on archaeology, in some ways, fictional stories can be built upon real archaeological events. Like the Avengers took place, and there's real places like New York, so to speak. I'm going to take this as a reference to... Apologia on... Uh Twitter mentioned a shawarma restaurant uh, in, I guess, it's New York City, and it's uh, it fits yeah. together with something in a Marvel movie where Tony Stark mentions a shawarma restaurant. And um, so, you know, like as if the Marvel movie gets this right. There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. So is this a reason that it's true? Or do you say this is just corroborative support? Two th- well, the, the archaeology shows that the, the gospel resurrection narratives, so the death and resurrection narratives, which hear me clearly, which are embedded in the gospels, they get it right. If it is true, there should be archaeological fallout for it. And there is. Hmm. All right. Well said. Well said. He literally didn't answer the question. Sean wasn't asking if the Bible has accurate archaeological information. He asked if accurate archaeological information would make it true. Jeremiah completely dodged the question. Craig Evans was their archaeologist. He's been on the show. He's actually coming back soon. I know he's a dear friend of yours and a mentor. He was making a point that within Judaism, there's a built-in system how to deal with false prophets. So, for example, if Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be the Messiah, claimed all these things, and then died a shameful death, he would have gone the way of the other false messiahs that you list within your book. But it didn't go that way with Jesus. Yes. Why? What change? Some of those failed movements, we read of two of them in the book of Acts. We know there's at least 10 messianic pretenders. I get into a few of those in the Gospels, and there's actually many more. I just, several. I mean, Jesus is not the only guy in the first century claiming to be the Messiah. Um, And again, that's where the resurrection becomes the game changer. And so we see that without the resurrection, without this fact, there is no Christian faith. First of all, it is odd to identify Professor Craig Evans as an archaeologist. I was a former student of Dr. Evans. He was the second reader of my MA thesis. So I know him a little bit. And he is an exceptional, accomplished biblical scholar. But as far as I know, he is not an archaeologist. Second, the point about the crucial distinctions made between burial practices for those who violated Jewish law from those who were crucified by Rome is important to bear in mind in this regard. If the argument here is that Jesus was executed by the Sanhedrin for blasphemy and yet did not suffer the same fate as numerous Mexianic claimants whose movements were crushed, this is a conflation or a confusion of a few independent ideas. Making a claim to be the Messiah in the first century is not the same as claiming to be God, nor even the Son of God. This was not blasphemy. And moreover, the survival of the church beyond the second century is not inexplicable outside of the Jewish checks on false prophecy. I think that a more plausible explanation for the emergence of Christianity has much more to do with Paul than it does with Jesus. The followers of Jesus continued in Jerusalem after his death to practice a nascent form of what we would call Christianity, but of which we know very little. And I think the reason we know so little about it is precisely because the church in Jerusalem, the church of James, brother of Jesus, disappeared with the destruction of the city by the Romans in 70 CE. However, as a result of Paul's efforts to internationalize the movement, it survived in Rome, in Ephesus, in Alexandria. And importantly, it changed to eventually become what we more readily recognize as Christianity distinct from Judaism. 
So I think on one hand, while Evans and Johnston are right to note that Jesus's movement is unique for having survived despite the death of their Messiah, on the other hand, the original form of this movement, which was probably much more like other Jewish messianic movements in the first century, also died. In other words, it wasn't the fact of Jesus's resurrection that carried it forward. Rather, it was the persistence through an amalgamation of Roman religious ideas in the Greek-speaking world that shaped this interesting and odd pagan expression of Judaism. Uh, number six, just say only Jesus' resurrection conventionally explains the conversion of people, not previously his followers. I don't think we appreciate that Paul was an ardent Pharisee. Oh, is Jeremiah asking us to get into Paul's head? We can't get into the disciples' head. That's my point number six when we look at the hostile witnesses who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the only reason Paul comes to faith in Jesus Christ is because he has an experience of seeing the resurrected Jesus. And that utterly transforms his worldview. Millions of hostile non-believers throughout history have had their lives changed by Christianity without having personally been an eyewitness to risen Jesus. To insist that Paul's experience had to be veridical in order to be transformative is simply special pleading. I feel like we gloss over that pretty quickly. Uh, in chapter 6, especially with Paul, I go into it in depth. Gary Habermas has done a phenomenal job talking about James. You know, what would it take for you to bring, Gary always says, you know, to believe that your brother was the son of God. You know, and everybody laughs because it would just be impossible to think, you know, a sibling could be the Messiah. Sure. And yet, what do we know from Josephus? AD 62, it's one of the reasons I date the book of Acts before AD 62. Um, we hmm. see that Josephus tells us that James dies. And by the way, Josephus is not in the Bible, friends. Uh, he gives us a, uh, something 28 times longer than any gospel, his writings. Um, he says that in AD 62, that James dies believing his brother is a Messiah. That's Josephus telling us that. So I find that thread compelling. I certainly hmm. wouldn't leave it out because it's not just the friendlies, the hostiles were coming to Christ as well. There are a few things going on here. First of all, Johnston, and by extension Habermas, is conflating two ideas. One, that Jesus was the son of God, and two, that he was the Messiah. It is a mistake to think that these are interchangeable terms. Within more conventional Jewish messianic expectation, the Messiah was to be a human being and not a god nor his son, at least not in the sense that later Christian writers understood it. But even from a more strictly Jewish perspective, the son of God was also a human, a royal figure. As with their ancient Near Eastern contemporaries, the Hebrew Bible reports that the Judean kings in the line of David were identified this way, as sons of Yahweh. But certainly by the time of the Second Temple period, this was understood to be representative or titular. Not that Jewish kings were literally God's offspring, but rather that they were God's representative for the nation on earth. So even if James ever ascribed to this idea of his own brother, it was more likely in this sense that Jesus was an earthly king of some sort and thus laid claim to the title. No, if James viewed his brother Jesus as the earthly Messiah, he did not regard him as a divine being. So the reference to Josephus is an important one and for most scholars is a significant indicator that Jesus was in fact a real figure in history, but that's for another discussion. It is also strong evidence to counter claims of authenticity attached to the James ossuary forgery, since violators of Jewish law were prohibited burial in tombs, and this precluded the possibility of osteolegion. This is the practice of permanently interring the bones of the deceased in small boxes, but more on this later. 
The passage in question says that Annas the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin and the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, whose name was James and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as lawbreakers, he delivered them to be stoned. What is Josephus reporting here? That James, whose brother was a messianic claimant, was the most prominent of a group of Jews whom Annas found grounds to execute. That's it. I think Johnston is drawing from the distinction of Jesus as the so-called Christ to promote the idea that this is how James viewed him. I mean, that seems like a reasonable assumption to make, but importantly, that is not precisely what the text says. For that matter, we have no idea why James was executed beyond the charge that he was a lawbreaker. This could mean any number of things in Jewish law, most of which have nothing to do with Jesus, nor James's relationship to him and what he believed about him. One thing Josephus absolutely does not confirm is that James ever attested to Jesus' distinction as a son of God. That is a poorly supported assertion. But insofar as this and his arguments about Paul support the notion that these men were hostile witnesses is concerned, people need to be reminded that both Paul and James were also apocalyptic Jews. Even though they came around to believing that Jesus was the Messiah, they already had this apocalyptic expectation deeply ingrained as part of their worldview. I don't think this satisfies enough of the burden of proof to conclude that their testimonies were so unexpected as to warrant an acceptance of the resurrection as an historical event. Point out also, we didn't have time to touch on it, the case against the resurrection. So I do lay out the case against the resurrection at the beginning of my book. So for skeptics or seekers or just people that want to know more who are listening to us today, I don't overlook that. I do lay out very clearly, and I did this also for the textbook that I wrote for, This is these are the cases against the resurrection. And then we move on from that to the case for it. I'm willing to bet, but hoping that I'm wrong, that Jeremiah in no way addresses the handful of sincerely mistaken believers hypothesis, like the one I put forth in my No Resurrection Required video. Instead, we'll get Swoon and Stolen Body. His seven points presented today seem entirely focused on defending against pure fraud. Uh, your book, I'm going to give another plug. I think it's excellent body proof, and I think it comes out Thank in March. You. So if you see this before, we're almost two months before it's out. Uh, you can pre-order it, check it out. I'm sure it was frustrating that I'm responding to your interview and not your actual book. But it's simply not available for me to read yet. Pre appreciate you coming on. We'll come back. And if there's more questions, maybe we'll do a response to it in due time. Rather than going back and forth, Dr. J, I'd welcome a friendly conversation with you sometime on my live channel or Sean's channel or Unbelievable or wherever it makes sense to explore how your new arguments fare in light of a skeptical eye. Thank you so much to Dr. Kip Davis for his scholarly insights. Thanks for having me again, Paul, despite my insufferable verbosity. If people are interested in more of what I'm doing, they can find counter-apologetics and teaching videos on my YouTube channel. And be sure to look for my new course titled Real Israelite Religions, Facts on the Ground and Propaganda in the Bible, coming soon to MVP Courses. Kip has begun an excellent series on his YouTube channel called The Dead Sea Scrolls Unapologetically, which I highly recommend for anyone interested in history, archaeology, and Judaism. Or tap on the screen now to catch Kip's previous visit to this channel. Old Testament does not foretell Jesus' birth. We'll see you over there. And until next time, later. Thank you.